Welcome to the Active Training Team podcast, where we talk about sharing ideas, adding value and increasing engagement in safety leadership. My name is Adam Christopher and I'm a director at ATT. Active Training Team use film, live drama and facilitated workshops to explore behaviour in the world of safety, health and well-being. I hope you enjoyed our last two-part episode in which Lee Davis, Costain's Key Accounts Director for HS2, described how COVID-19 was affecting him and his team. It was great to hear how flexible and responsive the construction industry can be, particularly in these unsettling times. We're doing another two-parter for you, this time focusing on young people coming into the construction industry. Lee will be back to tell us his views on why getting young people from all backgrounds into construction is important. Construction and infrastructure growth hasn't slowed down and doesn't look like it's going to. And we know that more young people are being encouraged to join these sectors. We want to look at how this is being done, what the risks are and what steps need to be taken to ensure that they're working safely. It's a big topic. And in part one of this two-parter, we're asking how employers are empowering young people to keep themselves and others safe whilst working in an industry that, let's be honest, is full of risk. In a while, you'll hear from Lauren Little and Oliver Booth, who I found incredibly inspiring. They work for the Danish renewable energy giant Orsted, who, like many companies delivering infrastructure projects, are facing the double-barrel challenge of finding young people to come and work in the industry and seeing how they can keep these people safe and, in Orsted's case, encourage them to thrive. But first, a chartered psychologist, Jennifer Webster. Recently, I read an Occupational Safety and Health Wiki article by Jennifer about safety and young workers. We've linked to it in the episode notes. Now, the International Labour Organisation defines young workers as those aged 15 to 24, And one statistic in the article really stood out for me. Compared with the rest of the workforce, those 15 to 24-year-olds are 50% more likely to be involved in an accident at work. Kind of incredible, isn't it? Jennifer is a registered occupational psychologist based at the Health and Safety Executive Science and Research Centre just outside Buxton in the Peak District. It's where a lot of the UK's health and safety research happens, and she's been pretty busy with the pandemic recently. But she spared me some of her time to talk about her research into young workers. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about how familiarity can often breed complacency in the workplace. So you might have assumed that those newest to the job market would be less vulnerable when it comes to health and safety because they're more switched on. But as Jennifer points out, there are some key differences that can begin to help explain that 50% more likely to have an accident statistic. We think that young people are different. And yes, there is a lot of care that needs to be taken in terms of protecting them because they don't have the experience they can fall on. But it's no different than perhaps someone coming into any industry for the first time there may be some elements where the brain architecture is still evolving and they're very much driven by their hearts rather than minds. So they may be more likely, more prone to take risks. They may be more emotionally driven. But on the whole, it's the same with anyone coming new into any job. If people are given a good induction, the employer makes sure that they've got the competence to do the job and have the support to do the job, they will do a good job. People want to come into work. I think Jennifer's right. For the most part, people do want to come into work. 
perhaps young people more than anyone. But what defines the good induction that Jennifer mentions? And how do we make sure people have the competence to do the job well and safely? If we want to understand why young people are more at risk at work, we also need to look at the precarious culture many of them are working in in 2021. This isn't necessarily the same sort of working environment that perhaps we were used to when we first started out, where it was a job for life and, you know, you had somebody normally assigned to you who would show you the ropes or would make sure that you had a proper induction. A lot of young people may have some false starts. They may do agency jobs. It's a very precarious workplace. If they've worked on a site or even in a different type of work environment while they're waiting for that start, say in construction, we don't think about some of the poor working practices they may have encountered and they're building their layers of experience sometimes based on poor practices and they think that's the norm and it's how you actually try to unravel that and make sure that yeah we know that our our structures are sound and robust so we know that anyone coming to work for us it doesn't matter whether they're a young worker an apprentice someone who's got you know years in on their trade as long as you've got good management systems in place. When you hear Jennifer say that, it sounds pretty straightforward. But I wonder if we see young people as less experienced, more vulnerable, does that make some employers reticent to take them on? It's the terminology in that, and there are certain groups are considered vulnerable because they may need to be given special consideration. I don't think it is particularly helpful, but equally, I think... It's important that employers do recognise that they are the employees of tomorrow. And you could say there's, you know, social corporate responsibility to actually make sure that you create a a skilled workforce. We have to remember that there's so many technological changes. We already know that there are shortfalls in the number of skilled trades compared to the ambition that's been set for construction in this country. So every time you have a a young apprentice, a young person, it's almost like it should be incumbent on you to make sure that at some stage these people are going to come back to you. But it does come down to what do you want for your business? It's about reputation, being a standard bearer of good practice, but it does help with productivity as well. I think people think that it's something separate, but it's just good business sense. It's good business sense to know exactly what your people are doing, and people actually can just pull together. Jennifer says there's another thing we can do to reduce the vulnerability of young workers. We can educate them about safety long before they start work. And how we educate them is key. We may not be able to reach people who are not in the traditional route, so to speak, but if we can reach enough people, youngsters, getting them thinking about health and safety and, and see that it's not something separate, it's something that keeps you safe, but also keeps the people around you safe. I know certainly at the lab pre-pandemic, we would have local school children in and they would be given almost like tasters of different bits of the lab that we do. We, we do a lot of blowing up of things which children love to see big watermelons with uh, safety hats on and throwing them on the ground and seeing what the consequence is. And at that level, it resonates with them and that sort of stays with them. That I must remember, if I ever go on site, I must wear my hard hat, otherwise I'll end up like the watermelon. There's a visceral style to this form of education that often appeals to young people. But we also need to think about what we can do once they actually start work. 
How do we make sure young people feel empowered to speak up without worrying about losing their jobs or worse? This might be their first proper, maybe permanent job or a job where they feel that they've got some chance of prospects. So they don't want to muddy the waters. So they're not going to say, you know, I've just noticed somebody there is doing something, you know, that I wouldn't do myself or that looks a bit dodgy. You know, that people are going to be more reluctant to raise their hand and say there's an issue. I'll give you an example where I was doing some work with apprentices and the apprentices had basically banded together as a group because they've got a lot in common and, you know, they shared a lot of experiences together. They were going off to college one day a week and then coming back on site. But no one was looking out for them. And because there was almost like a blame culture within that organisation, that's what they picked up on. No one wanted to rock the boat for, for the others. So they were telling me that if anyone said anything, they got taken behind the porter cabins and duffed up because they didn't want anyone to make them, as a group, look bad or to show them up. That's shocking hearing that. I mean, it's worrying, isn't it? But it does bring us back to the good management systems Jennifer mentioned earlier. Those apprentices were in a lose-lose situation without a good, robust management structure in place. Jennifer told me that in her personal view, these sorts of issues have been exacerbated in recent years by our zero-harm culture. I've been in situations where It's been celebrated within various companies and two months before that magic, oh, we've got through the the whole year, somebody has just had a lapse or made a mistake. It wasn't deliberate, it's just one of those things. And they have had so much flack for what they've done. Unfortunately, targets breed behaviour and they breed bad behaviour in my experience. It was always designed to encourage people to think about safety. But I think sometimes the messaging around zero harm has got corrupted in some way, away from its ideal aim, which is to try and encourage people to think safely and and be healthy three, six, five days of the year. It's not about we're going to meet, you know, make sure that nothing happens because I've seen near miss reporting. No one reports half the stuff that actually goes on. You're just going to drive more and more of the things that you need to know about underground. And then when something does happen, it's a massive big surprise. I think Jennifer's right. We need to move away from a culture of fear. But where do we start? On the one hand, young people might be more prone to accidents and less risk averse. But on the other, a lot of them are probably more on top of health and safety guidance than their older colleagues. They're brand new in the industry and they're more likely to pay more attention be less complacent. Jennifer thinks breaking up workplace cliques could be a good place to begin. People tend to group together. They look for similarities. So if you look at a canteen, you often see your older workers sitting all together in a huddle or your younger apprentices sitting together in a huddle or you might find your office workers all sitting in the huddle because they have something in common. So what often happens, and this can be detrimental to younger workers, if you're putting a project team together, what often happens is you put all the experienced people together in one group and then all the apprentices in another. So then you create an artificial division between them. Whereas actually if you want to encourage learning, and I mean learning at both ends because the lack of training or refresher training for people who are sort of midpoint in their career or at the end of the career, in my experience, it doesn't happen or it's very rare. But if you have 
young people coming in, they've been to college, they've done their courses, they've been introduced to new health and safety practices, and they're working with more experienced people who perhaps haven't had the refresher training. Bringing them together, a mixed group of experience, actually creates a stronger, cohesive group. But if you separate them out, then you're going to end up getting friction. So it's that group there. Oh, it's the youngsters. They don't know what they're doing. Then the youngsters saying, oh, the old doodars, they, you know, they're behind the times. They're, they're dinosaurs. As an organisational structure, you know, I would be making sure that you want to have a more inclusive culture where possible, where mentoring isn't just from the experienced person downwards. It's from the person coming in upwards. This point makes complete sense. The more we mix different demographics within the workplace, the more likely it is that people will influence those around them. And if the culture is right, this will be in a positive way. But how do we do that? It takes leaders, I guess. And let's face it, before you know it, young people are not as young as they once were, and they'll find themselves being looked up to by people younger than them. A good, solid, fit-for-purpose management structure is essential for this to exist. And this is at the centre of the working culture at the renewable energy company, Orsted. In 2019, Orsted opened the world's largest offshore wind operations and maintenance centre in Grimsby on the northeast Lincolnshire coast. These are exciting times for the port town. The offshore wind industry has rejuvenated prospects for young people in the area. To have something so cool and modern and at the forefront of something and you know we were known as like the world's premier fishing port well now we're the leaders in offshore wind which is a completely different industry but we're the world leader once again lauren little works as a stakeholder advisor for austin which means she gets to share opportunities with young people and raise awareness in the local community and she's the perfect person for the job Grimsby and offshore wind is my passion, so I couldn't work in a better industry and a better job. I'm local to Grimsby, all my family are local to here, and generations of my family have worked on the fish docks. My dad is a fish merchant, so in you know, the traditional industry and the one that Grimsby is most well known for. Um, his father, you know, also had a fish factory and fish business, so it just carries on. But obviously kind of end of the line he had two girls we probably wasn't going to carry that family business on but actually I work on the port as well in a brand new industry who would have thought and what an amazing one for Grimsby something for young people to aspire for once again well the whole community to aspire for once again. It's not just amazing for Grimsby the offshore wind industry is benefiting the whole region whether it's Orsted Wind Farm, the Siemens Turbine Blade Factory in Hull or various supporting businesses and institutions throughout the Humber. It's a success story for the UK, for the North East and for Lauren herself. She told me how she came on board at Orsted. I went to university for, for three years um, to Newcastle University. I studied geography there and we had a lecture one day about offshore wind in the North East and how that was transforming the North East region. And I knew at that second that that was what I wanted to do. I could see that happening in my hometown. So I uh, wrote my dissertation on offshore wind and its impact on Grimsby and interviewed some of the people that I work with today, including my manager, and then um, just waited for that that moment where I could actually move across to Orsted and my perfect position came up. Been there since July 2018. And when I wrote about it and when I came to Orsted, which was then Dong Energy, 
I went to a graveled car park and three porter cabins that were on that site. And, you know, it was a very basic setup. Now we've got the world's largest offshore wind operations and maintenance base. We've invested £14 million in this amazing facility that's been likened to Thunderbirds HQ. And now I work out of that building. Lauren told me she's seen a real impact on the lives of youngsters in her hometown since the arrival of the offshore wind industry. Also, they're definitely raising the aspirations of young people. It's something to, it's an industry to aspire to. It actually will make them focus on their maths and science subjects because they know they want to work here. Gives them a bit of hope as well and a reason to stay in Grimsby, which, you know, for many years, maybe people felt like they would have had to leave this area because there's no opportunities. But now there is an opportunity and it's an opportunity where it's actually making a difference and they can translate what they see on TV, what they hear on radio, what they see on social media about climate change. And that's a real job, like fighting climate change, working for a world leader in renewable energy in their hometowns, actually taking real action against climate change. Over the last few years, there's been a groundswell of young people speaking out about climate change, fueled by the likes of Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion. It's impossible to ignore. Working at Orsted could perhaps be seen to be a form of direct action for youngsters passionate about renewable energy. And passion is what the company is looking for. We want young people to be part of the story. They are the next generation. And I would say as well, though, our apprenticeship programme, we take um, young people from school leaving age, so 16. But it's not just for young people. You know, you could apply at any age. So what really stands out and what we're really looking for in these applications is is passion and enthusiasm for the industry. The ones that really stand out, they're passionate about making a difference. They've got some hands-on practical experience, and I'm not talking about work experience because you wouldn't have that at 16, but have you fixed a bike with your dad? Have you fixed a light bulb? Have you got a hobby? It could be anything from piano to rock climbing to you know, anything. We just want to sh- people to show their passion and enthusiasm. That's what makes you stand out. Oliver Booth is one of those enthusiastic people that stood out. He's 19 and he grew up in Grimsby, not far from the docks and that Thunderbirds HQ. It's always been a passion of mine to be able to work out there, especially, like I say, going down onto the beach in Glowthorpes and seeing the turbines and having people who I know who works on the turbines, seeing photos and videos of their experiences and their jobs on top of the turbines. It's like the experiences they consider normal. It's like a out-of-this-world photo or situation to other people like me, you know what I mean? And be able to be a wind turbine technician apprentice for Allstead. Yeah, it was all absolutely ecstatic when I got the phone call saying I was accepted. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I was at my old place actually and I was ringing everybody up and I was nearly crying on the phone to them actually, it's funny you say that, but when I rang my mum who was crying and then my dad got home, he was crying and all my fact because it was such like a, an intense, I think it was about four months, three or four months, it was such an intense four months throughout my whole family because they all knew I was applying for it and they all knew I, need, I wanted this job so much and for me to be able to turn around at the end and go, I got it, it was just over the moon. I was lucky enough to meet a few of the Orsted apprentices and listening to them, I learned that their previous work experience at other organisations hadn't always been great, particularly from a health and safety perspective. However, Orsted's approach meant things were different from the get-go, starting with applying to be an apprentice. It wasn't just what you knew and your knowledge, it was how you are as a person. 
seeing Orsted do that, it, it meant a lot, to be honest with you. Because if you don't enjoy going to work, there's no worse, is there? So, like, and at the end of the day, if you can turn around and speak to your manager about things, being able to know who they are and know that they're not going to give you a hard time about stuff, I think I think being able to have that communication and, well, that, that team bonding, really, do you know what I mean? I think that plays a huge part. All of the values, knowing who his manager is, it seems so basic, doesn't it? Yet many young workers are in a position where even that isn't clear. And even if they do know who their manager is, they're unsure as to whether or not they'll be able to talk to them, whether or not they'll be given a hard time if they raise their hand and ask a question. Orsted's recruitment process for their apprenticeships is clearly a thorough exercise that gives opportunities to local young people to unleash their potential and have long careers in a burgeoning industry. And how they educate those that work for them is equally as thorough, whether that's providing a good and proper induction process or ongoing on-the-job training. Orsted's Hornsey 2 wind farm project commissioned ATT to design, build and manage the Thrive Safety Leadership Centre. It's an immersive multimedia programme that runs out of a purpose-built centre on the Humber. A vertical slice of the company attend every session. This promotes the team bonding ethos that Oliver values so highly, as well as embraces the 360 mentoring process that Jennifer believes is essential to shared learning. I've heard a lot of people say about health and safety training and it's how boring it is, but it was it was a totally different outlook on it. Putting yourself in that real situation where there was people acting out that well scenario, because it made you realise how dangerous it actually is and the health and safety behind it and being able to like be interviewed by the actor. It showed you that he was actually listening to it and taking in what they was actually doing and stuff like that. I think it just shows that they want to know, they want to be there for the staff and they want the staff to know that that you can speak to them, do you know what I mean? I'm sure Jennifer's story about beatings behind a porter cabin earlier rang alarm bells in all of us. We know that young people don't always feel able to speak up about their concerns, safety or otherwise. So what more are Orsted doing to give people the confidence to speak up? And what are they doing to give the community opportunities to feel empowered? Here's Lauren again. We have done some targeted work with some of those more deprived schools in the area this year to try and reach those young people that might not think that they can apply, that they haven't got the potential or they just can't do it. We want to tell them that they can. We are looking for for great candidates, but we're also looking for diverse candidates as well. So we don't want people that all look the same. And our apprentice programme reflects that. We don't have people that all look the same. It's great because then we have a diverse pool of apprentices that can challenge us in the way that we think because we want diversity of thought and with that diversity of thought they're going to challenge us to think differently so let us listen it's in our interest to listen i think what we're saying is in order to enable everyone to feel safe and to work safe we need to create a culture where challenge isn't just accepted it's embraced it's welcomed i guess it's not sort of an easy thing to accept challenge but I think we have the right culture at Orsted that we do accept challenge and, and making people feel differently about challenge as well. That, you know, it's nothing kind of personal. It's not an attack. It's just a challenge around something or which could then provoke a discussion to then create a better outcome for everybody or an improved outcome, whatever it might be. I don't think I'd be able to speak to anybody and they wouldn't try help me. 
Here's Oliver again. And that's people I don't know. That's people I don't work with. I'm only at college at the minute, but I think that I feel like I could email a lot of people and they'd be there for me and try to get me the help I needed. Even though we're apprentices, we're the younger generation, really. I still believe if we told someone of the older generation, say if we was working with them, regarding a the health and safety practice, it's, I still think they'd be able to take it on the chin and be able to accept it and be able to modify what they was doing. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that you get any stick from anybody, really. I, I do believe like they'd be able to take it on the chin and accept that they've done something wrong and be able to take it from the apprentice. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? It was so refreshing and inspiring to talk to Oliver and Lauren, two people with immense pride in their jobs and where they're from. I'm going to let our psychologist, Jennifer, have the last word or three. Checking, communicating, supporting. I think those three words are probably the best advice anyone could give. But don't be put off by employing young people because they are not the risk. It's you not managing those individuals or any individual in the workplace. That's the risk to you as a business. Thanks to Lauren, Oliver and Jennifer for joining me. We'll be back in part two with Lee Davis and the Construction Youth Trust talking about what organisations can do to engage and empower disadvantaged young people in this sector. This is series two of the Active Training Team podcast. You can find all our previous episodes on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Just search for the ATT Safety Leadership Podcast. And if you've got any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at activetrainingteam.co.uk. I'm Adam Christopher. This episode was produced by Jane Long. Thanks to Sophie Jones and everyone at ATT. I'll see you next time and thanks for listening. Stay safe and well.